This morning I want to speak with you from the subject, True Spiritual Worship. True Spiritual Worship. We're looking at Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6 as we continue our series through Exodus, and in particular through the Ten Commandments at this time. God has redeemed you. And he did that in order to reconcile you to himself, to restore you to live under his reign or his rule, and to commission you to represent him in this world for his renown. God uses your loving, grateful obedience, your love for him, your response to his love for you, his lordship, his grace, and his glory, God uses your love to spread his kingdom in this world. The world would be such a better place, wouldn't you agree, if you just loved God and loved others as he commanded? I know that's true for me. If I loved God and loved people as God commanded, the world by definition would be a better place. And so the importance of loving and serving God, of keeping his commandments, that's what Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The importance of loving and serving God simply cannot be overstated. In light of our call to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness to the end that the world might be better, the world might see the character of Christ in you, we turn again to these Ten Commandments. And this morning we address the Second Commandment, which states, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous or zealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It is important to remind ourselves as we work our way through these commandments that each commandment must be prefaced by and read in view of the preface. It is the overarching foundation and motivation for all of the commandments. I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That preface should be considered and brought to mind and even read before every single one of these commandments. It's the backdrop of all of them. Your covenant relationship with God, His being, and His work on behalf 
of his glory and your good must always lie behind all that you think, speak, and do as a follower of Jesus Christ. The Lord never, ever separates his being and his work from your identity and obedience to him. Someone very helpfully stated regarding the differences between the first and the second commandments, and I quote, In the first commandment, we are instructed to worship and serve God alone. And in the second commandment, we are instructed to worship and serve God alone only by the way in which God has commanded us to worship him. The first commandment is concerned with the object of worship, and the second commandment is concerned with the manner of worship. The first tells us who to worship, and the second tells us how to worship him. End of quote. With the first command, we learned everything and everyone, especially ourselves, can be an idol, can be put in first place before God. With the second commandment, you and I are forbidden from making material or mental images of anything in order to worship them, serve them, or as if they are an essential ingredient to worshiping God, a necessity through which we worship God. You shall not make for thyself, uh, this command starts, and this statement highlights an approach to worship that is self or human-centered, self-initiated, and void of any divine directives. Worshiping God your way. If you leave a worship service and are moved to sing, I did it my way, you are in serious trouble. Worship is not about you. It must always be triune God-centered through and through. God is the only being worthy of worship. Therefore, by definition, worship must be completely from Him, so far as how we are to go about worshiping. Through Him, that is, enabled by His spiritual power, and to him, that is, having him as the only object and objective of your worship. For our chief desire and purpose in worship, service, and life must eternally be to him. To God be the glory forever. Amen. Israel, you and I, are told no graven or carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. One theologian stated, the Hebrew word translated as carved image always refers to an object that is carved or chiseled and then use as an object of worship. In other words, an idol. End of quote. 
Anything in heaven, in earth, or in the water, these are the realms that are talked about in this command. The fact that God says these three realms proves that you and I have a depraved ability to abuse every part of creation and our creativity for idolatry and dishonoring God. We exchange God's glory. When you travel to a different country, either before you leave or when you arrive, you exchange your country's money into the currency of the country that is your destination. And often when you do, your money loses value. When you worship creation or God your way, and not exclusively worship God, His way, your worship loses all of its value. It's not worship, it's idolatry. It is an exchanging of the Creator's glory for that of His creatures. Israel, you and I were liberated, are liberated, to live under the Lord's sovereignty not liberated to live and worship as we please. The point here is not don't make any images or likenesses of anything, but don't make any images or likenesses of anything to worship them, or as a medium of worship, a necessary and essential ingredient for approaching God, serving God, or worshiping God. The Egyptians worshipped all kinds of created things, the sun, the moon, the stars, the Nile, frogs, falcons, and all sorts of other creatures. And that's where Israel just came from. The Canaanites, where they were headed, were not really any different in terms of worshipping created things. They also worshipped creation. Israel and us, we are commanded here to not bow down or serve or worship anything or anyone other than God himself, and to worship God his way. So when we think about this, you and I do need to take great care with respect to images and likenesses in relation to worship and serving God. Uh, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 4, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all people under the whole heaven. Israel just came out of Egypt, and they saw people doing these sorts of things. They're going to go into Canaan, and they're going to see people doing these sorts of things. 
And God says, be careful. You didn't see any form. You didn't see any likeness. So again, the point is don't make carved images or likenesses to bow down to and serve or worship as God or as some essential ingredient that you need in order to connect you to God. You don't need a rosary. You don't need a statue, some kind of icon, in order to approach God and worship Him. What is emphasized in Deuteronomy 4 is that Israel saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to them. Here God emphasizes the words He spoke above all that Israel saw. The fire, the smoke, the mountain, the noise, the thunder. The words of God are primary and preeminent and absolutely essential, whereas images are simply not. As you continue to read Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses further amplifies the preeminence of God's words. He states, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and asked from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. This highlights even more when you consider the case of Moses. This is highlighted even more when you consider the case of Moses. It is said of Moses, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, You shall see my back. The Lord said of Moses, He beholds the form of the Lord. Note the care that Moses took with respect to the form of the Lord he saw. Israel saw no form, but Moses did see a form. Yet he did not make an image or likeness of God to worship, for worship, nor did he make a form to aid others in worship. He did not instruct nor encourage Israel to make an image or likeness of the form he saw, nor did he give any precise details of the form of God which he saw. The thing that's related to this is that when God told Moses to make the tabernacle, he told him to make it according to the pattern that you saw on the mountain. And obviously he told him to make it as a, a house of worship, but not 
an object of worship. When Israel sinned against the Lord with the golden calf, and Moses went back up the mountain to intercede, he said to the Lord, he eventually said, Please show me your glory. We know from from God's response that Moses wanted to see the face of God in its fullness or even more fully. Well, the Lord said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. My face shall not be seen. Moses wanted a visual aid, but the Lord said no. However, what the Lord did give Moses and you was what someone called a verbal aid that resulted in Moses bowing down, worshiping, confessing sin, and petitioning the Lord simply because of what God said. There has been a great emphasis on visual aids in worship, but the Lord's emphasis is on His Word. One author said in relation to the Lord's proclamation and revelation of His name to Moses, and I quote, This unique revelation from God, describing Himself for Moses and the people in terms of His attributes, by which they were to remember and have knowledge of him, became the single most quoted passage in the Old Testament. It is quoted or alluded to dozens of times in Scripture. The reason why they must not make unto themselves an image of God after their own concepts was that their concepts were erroneous, and God had a perfect image, a verbal image of himself, by which... They and their children ought to know him. This brings us to Jesus. End of quote. This brings us to Jesus, the perfect representation of God, the Father. He flawlessly reflects God's form, his character, his attributes. He's God. Everything about God. The fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. The fullness of the Godhead, bodily, is dwelling in Jesus, bodily. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. There really is nothing left to see. Yet, it is said of Jesus, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and His form beyond that of the children of mankind, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, as one from whom men hide their faces. That's often not the case of so many pictures of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus Christ, the image of God, that's who Jesus is, he is the image of God, you and I, who are created in God's image, are called to reflect God's image, called to reflect Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God. From the book of Exodus, we learn that God is, when he proclaimed his name, he is present. He descended with Moses and stood with him there. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives wickedness, transgression, and sin, and he does not 
ignore sin of the guilty who don't repent. Jesus perfectly images these things. And in him you also are to reflect God's image in this way in your daily lives. You are also called to be present with the broken, showing mercy, grace, slowness to anger, steadfast in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, transgression, and sin, and not ignoring people's sin when they don't repent. You must be far more concerned and committed to reflecting God's image in your life of worship than with seeing or savoring some man-made image that has more potential to obscure the truth of God's being and glory than to reveal the truth of God's being and glory, which you are meant to do in your daily life. John said, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John is saying that although God is spirit, although God is invisible, although God can't be seen, just like Jesus our Savior made God visible, we, in a far lesser way, but still in a genuine way, can also make God visible as we walk in love and serve others God's way. Our life is called to reflect the character of God. God becomes visible. John says God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love. And when we follow Jesus and bow to him and worship him, his character begins to form in us as we behold that glorious list of attributes as they are seen in him. Jesus did this himself when he told parables. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he showed what mercy looks like. And he gives us a portrait, he gives us a picture of how to care for others. It calls us away from itself to actually worship the living God. Same thing with the father, the prodigal son. And it shows us a portrait, a picture of the Father's love. He's like a father. He's like this particular father. There are many reasons to follow God's directives and submit to his regulating of how he is to be worshipped. The preface of the commandments reminds us of who God is and what he has done, and this preface is alluded to as the first order the first motivation for keeping this second commandment. When God gives a rationale for the second commandment in verse 5, the Lord says, For I, the Lord your God, which reminds Israel and us of the preface. But then he goes on, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In the Bible it says that God's name is jealous. Jealous in the Hebrew Bible is the same word for zealous and should remind you of God's zeal for his glory, for his uniqueness. All creation reflects God's glory, according to Psalm 19, but his creation is not him, nor is it to be treated as him. Creation can be admired only in relation to God. 
Nothing in creation has any intrinsic value, beauty, or goodness apart from its relation to and reflection of God, its creator. God is uniquely jealous and zealous for his glory and honor. He alone has a right to be worshipped. Nothing and no one else can make that claim. And God says to you, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you. That's what God says of you. God is yearning jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell inside of you. God wants you. He longs for you. And he longs to reflect himself through you. The Father is seeking, Jesus said, people to worship him in spirit and truth. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. And by God's spirit, and according to his truth, we are called to worship, and worshiping God is not a materialistic endeavor or based on a specific geographical location. Remember what God told the woman of Samaria about Jerusalem that there was coming a day, and that day has already come, come and gone, that people would no longer simply have to go to Jerusalem to worship God, but they can worship God wherever they are on the face of the earth. And God says to you, wherever you are, my son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Worship really is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of the trappings, whether they're there or not. It's a matter of the heart. What goes on inside? Jesus said of the Pharisees, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's what his concern is, and that's where his concern is. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. You are wanted by God. Did you know that? Not like the people pictured in the United States Post Office. Not like in the Old West where there was a wanted sign posted and people were in trouble with the law. God wants you because he has united you to Jesus and you are his child and he takes great delight in loving you and your love for him. Jesus, like any good bridegroom, is jealous, zealous for his bride, so jealous, so zealous that he gladly left heaven when commissioned to suffer on a cross for your redemption, to buy you. You've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus, in order that you might be delivered to reconcile you to himself, to restore you under his blessed reign, and to have you re-enlisted by him to resemble him, reflect him, and represent him for his renown. That's a blessing that God would have it that way, that he wants you to resemble him. He wants you to reflect him. He wants you, the likes of you, with your past, with your history, God has washed you 
clothed you, indwelt you, fills you. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're a brand new creation. You are a brand new Genesis. And God wants you to represent him for his renown in this world, to reflect his image so that when people look at your life and see the character of Christ in your life, they are brought to their knees before God. And they're called to worship Him as they hear your testimony of what God has done in your life. Even as the people in the day of the of the woman of Samaria heard her testimony, heard her words, and were brought to worship God. The Lord is zealous for you and zealous to bear fruit through your life for the Father's glory. He is zealous to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding and great joy. In addition to the motivations found in the preface and God's jealous zeal for his glory in your life and worship. Two other motivations for obeying the second commandment are given. First, God threatens to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. Do you realize that your life and the way you live, and particularly the way you worship the Lord, has long-standing repercussions? Those who don't worship God's way, God says they, they hate him, which is strong language. Throughout Scripture, God's word respecting worship has been everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. We can't regulate worship any kind of way we want to. We've got to regulate it according to God's directives. This is one of the passages that is used where we get what's called the regulative principle of worship. True freedom and liberty is following Jesus, your leader, and not worshiping God your way, doing whatever you feel like you'd like to do. This warning, however, sometimes seems unfair. You know, you do something wrong and God visits that iniquity on your children to the third and the fourth generation. One uh, theologian taught it should remind us that there is no such thing as a private sin. The way you worship has consequences on other people. The way Israel worshipped in the, in the first century had consequences on other people to the point where they blasphemed God because they didn't see in Israel's life real redemption. The way we worship God has repercussions, consequences on other people. Here, it's your children, it's my children. 
to the third and fourth generation. However, this, this generational cycle can be broken. Some people live under this burden of generational sin, that I'm suffering because of something someone else did. Well, that's true. We do suffer because of what other people do. But this particular generational curse, as some people like to put it, uh, this generational uh, repercussion, that cycle is broken down completely by repentance and faith. When someone repents of sin, when they see what the fathers have done, so to speak, and they say, that's wrong, I'm, I don't want to do that, and they repent of sin and believe in Christ and live for him, that cycle is broken because that, that person who's repented of false worship and idol worship is no longer described as someone who hates God, but is rather described as someone who loves the Lord and keeps his commandments. And that brings us to the final reason given as a motivation for following this commandment. The Lord says he will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Even more than hatred uh, for God's impact, love for God and loyalty to him brings blessing to thousands. What an incentive it is to love the Lord and to worship him, worship him genuinely the way he has commanded. It causes blessings to flow to thousands from God's heart and from his hand. Love for God does change the world. We have no idea how powerful the impact of our worship of God can be in this world. What influence you have in your hands right now. All of life is worship. And in view of God's mercies in Christ Jesus, Paul and I urge you to present your bodies, that we would all do this, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of, of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Sometimes we think about idols and we think about things that are ancient. But there's a lot more idols today, or just as many idols today as there ever has been. Probably more. We go to places perhaps like India or China or other places and then we see all of these idols, thousands and thousands of idols, and we think, oh, this is really paganism. But Sex can be an idol. Money can be an idol. And unfortunately, these things can be turned to and used in a twisted fashion. And our hearts are always running after some form of idolatry. That's why we need to constantly be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we have this brokenness within us. And that transfers into a worship service where we figure, well, I can just worship God the way I want to worship God, the way I feel is comfortable for me. But that's not what God says. God has a way of worship, and he calls us to that way of worship. And the centrality of that worship is the triune God himself and his word 
and the things that he calls us to use as his means of grace. Let the Lord reflect in your life his very own image. As you trust in him and walk with Jesus, daily repenting of your sin and believing in and reflecting his love for you to others as proof of your love for him and pleasure in him. Be in your life and relationship with others a reflection of God, worthy of his gospel, and wooing the world to worship him, to bow to him, to serve him, the only true Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Christ Jesus. God bless you and keep you.